The process is intentionally sitting yourself down and being open to whatever comes. Some of the best ideas I have ever had have happened when I have been like, I do not want to write today. I don't have anything to write about. I'm frustrated. I'm tired. But okay, I'm going to sit down. I'll literally write at the bottom of my Word document 1,500 words. Don't be a sucker. You can do it. Even if like 1,400 of those words are garbage, at the end of the day, you still wrote 100 really good words. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Today, we are joined by Bradley Jackson. Bradley is a writer, director, and novelist living in the Los Angeles area. He has written successful screenplays for films that have been purchased by major movie studios and was recently a writer and producer for the acclaimed documentary film Delt and the four-part docuseries for Showtime called Action. In this episode, we discuss the immense pressure of the creative process and how he has learned that creativity is a function of discipline. Bradley also shares with us how high-performing teams are a key to reacting to the unpredictable world of film. This was a very insightful conversation, and if you are someone that is paid to create, you need to listen to every word he has to say. If you find today's podcast be valuable, please subscribe and share it with your friends and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Bradley, glad to have you on, my friend. Yeah, great to be here, Eric. So, when did you realize that you had a knack for writing and directing? Like, when did you discover this talent of yours? I was always fascinated with films growing up. I grew up in Houston, Texas. Not really an active or vibrant film scene in Houston, Texas, especially mm-hmm. in the uh, in the nineties yep. that I knew of, of course. And so, I think the only person or or thing that I could see that was like involved with movies was like the local film critic. And his name was Eric Harrison. I remember he wrote for the Houston Chronicle. And so I thought I wanted to be a film critic for the longest time. I think because I just didn't really know that you could just go make movies or that you could just go write scripts. And then when I was in high school, I did like a a summer seminar program that taught filmmaking. It was more, it was more like a, critical studies kind of a thing was like film, you know, for film nerd kids, but some kids in my class who were my age were making their own movie and I started helping them. And I was really intrigued by that. And so that was the summer before my senior year of high school. And that was right around the time when what you would call prosumer video cameras were coming out. Mm -hmm. And if anyone's a film nerd out there, the Canon XL one, I think was what it was called was like the very first, it was like, it was probably like $10,000, which like a lot of money, but like every media department in the world bought one. Gotcha. Because $10,000 for a little, for a camera, you could actually like do like that. Not, you know, not a huge (laughs) stadium style. And that shot like pretty decent quality. Now it would look like garbage compared to like this zoom feed. is probably a better quality (laughs) than, than those cameras. But my friend's dad was in charge of my school's media department and he got one 
So me and some friends, I just like, hey, can I borrow the camera? And we would just started making movies. And I taught myself how to edit. And so between my summer of my junior year and the end of my, uh, before I went to college, more or less, that kind of like 16 month period, I guess you could call it. I ended up making like five short films, ranging hmm. from like garbage, one minute, just me and some friends, like, I mean, but I would write scripts. It wasn't like we were just doing, you know, the jackass style of just like, hey, go, uh, you know, go run through that shopping cart or whatever. Bradley, what what was the time frame on this? Like 2000? This would have been uh, 2003. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. this is what, like, people were actually starting to, like, put stuff on MTV. There was home videos. There was a lot of kind of exposure to you creating content. Like, people were creating content. It was yeah, more of I mean, a democratized YouTube, yeah, thing. It was getting there. It was getting yeah. there. Like YouTube, YouTube was not around yet. Right. And so, and the idea of making your movie and putting it online was like not really a real thing yet. Uh huh. Like I remember, I had to if I wanted to watch an old SNL sketch, I had to download it onto my iPod or my MP3 player, and no video, just the audio. So I would be like. <laughs> listening to audio of the celebrity jeopardy sketches and that was the only way you could re-experience like an snl sketch or whatever stuff stuff we take for granted right now so and i was writing scripts for all these things and like i remember there was one movie i made where i had to i'm not an actor but i had to cast myself as the lead role just because like the lead role is in every scene and i could not depend on my friends to be in every scene (laughs) but like there was a couple scenes in it that I still, you know, I'm romanticizing it, but like, I still think to this day work, obviously super poorly shot and whatever, you know, I would very amateur, but like the construction of the scene, I think still works. And I remember showing it to my friends and like seeing the laughter Mm. and just being like, all right, I'm done. This is it. This is what I, you know, something like this is something that I have. So you had an early win. Yes, an early win. And it wasn't like, a, hey, this kid's got something. It wasn't like some guy with a cigar is like, wow, this kid's really good. It was just like, my friends laughed. My brothers laughed. I think my parents cringed. So that was a good sign. Um, <laughs> you and- know, I remember when my brother, Luke, have you ever seen Cartographer? No, is that is that one of Luke's early uh, works? Yeah, so he, in high school, he started filming these ridiculous commercials and playing them in the high school and this one was called cartographer and it was like a cologne commercial and i will and you have to ask him to pull it out of his archive somewhere from the sony vio and when everybody saw that i was like this was so creative and everybody's just like getting so much joy from it i can imagine it's kind of like a an athlete does something and you're, people are like, wow, okay, you, you got something. So was this, the, this was the moment where you're like, okay, this is something I'm meant to do. Yeah. And then to like, to maybe build a tiny bit on that, my freshman year of college, I was in a fraternity. So hopefully people don't judge me based on that. <laughs> but we had like, we built, you know, we would do these parties where we would build things. We'd build like a little structure and I made a short documentary about it, about mm. one of them. And, you know, I filmed it myself. I pulled like two all-nighters editing it. 
And then I remember showing it and everyone's like, that's so good. How much do you like, can you make me a copy? And I ended up making like a hundred bucks. There you go. I would like make DVDs and then sell that for like $5 a pop. And I did that a couple for a couple of different things. So yeah, I, that was kind of like, Oh, I made a little bit of money doing this. Hmm. So, that's when you yeah. have to go to Best Buy, buy the DVD stack and then burn them one by one. Yeah, on your giant PC, <laughs> you know, tower. Tower, yeah. 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 You can't even so. get that now. I love it. So yeah. there was this connection between I can create something, I can make some money doing it. What did, what were you studying and what university did you go to? I went to University of Texas at Austin. Nice. Uh, and I was a radio TV film major. Okay. I fully jumped in. I think I knew, I mean, it was something, I knew I wanted to do something in film from like middle school, pretty much, mm-hmm. or even like lower school. But it wasn't, it wasn't like dialed into like, oh, filmmaking was the thing until like uh, senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't necessarily key as hard into screenwriting until probably like my sophomore or junior year of college. How did you decide that that was kind of going to be your niche? I mean, I mean, I think I, all, I, I still do direct some to this day, but it's not nearly as much. And that we can get into that in a second. But I remember I had a, a couple of screenwriting classes, like screenwriting 101 classes, where like I felt and I got some feedback from professors like, hey, you're good at this. And like, I knew I was like, not, not, it wasn't, it's not, not like a cocky thing, but like, they would give us like these like assignments where it wasn't like write something personal. It'd be like, Hey, there's a scene where this has to happen. It needs to be three pages. Do it. And I'd be like, sweet. This is awesome. And mm-hmm. like, it wouldn't take me that much time. And it would, it would just be kind of one of those things where it's like, Oh, I think I found my like, Stephen King calls it your great interest. Huh. Um, and whether it's history, whether it's cars, whether it's whatever, it's like the younger you can find your great interest your thing, I guess, the more, the happier you'll be, or maybe even the more miserable you'll be, who knows? (laughs) So, yeah. And then, um, I wrote a feature film that ended up getting produced, but my first feature I ever wrote was a comedy about intramural football. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about that because in your bio, I find it funny. It says that you wrote this movie intramural and then, unfortunately, and that's the, the word that popped out to me, it was changed by the studio to balls out. And yeah. um, I mean, you had some pretty good actors. You had Kate McKinnon and Beck Bennett yeah. in this. And yeah, what happened there? Because it doesn't seem like balls out really matched. What happened? Yeah, I mean, so just going back just a little bit, like that was the first script I ever wrote. But it was always something I would come back to like every year. I would have written another script and then I'd be like, yeah, I should go back to that intramural script and just like tinker with it. And I think like my second draft I sent to my film professor who I still am in, who's like an incredible filmmaker himself. His name is Scott Rice. I actually had lunch with him a couple of days ago. He's, he's a successful commercial director, documentary director as well. And he read it and he was like, Hey, this is good. It's not great yet. Like you could you can make it a lot better, but like you're 22 years old and like this is good. Like just keep working on it, keep working on it. So anyways, I, it was always something I would come back to, come back to, come back to. Finally, I'm like 26 years old, starting a production company in Austin with some friends, and I kind of brought the script out. I was like, hey, I think this could be a movie we could get made for not a ton of money, and I think we could do it really well. 
and they read it. They agreed. We hired this director that I love that I still work with today named Andrew Disney. And we, we like went all out to like get a great cast. Like our template for this movie was another movie called wet hot American summer, which if you haven't seen it, it's one of the funniest movies ever made, but that was a movie that was made, I think in 2001. And at the time, all these people were kind of unknown, but the movie had Bradley Cooper, Paul Rudd, Amy Poehler, Elizabeth Banks, and like four or five other people, Janine Garofalo, like all of these actors that were not that famous, but who then over the next 20 years became like wildly famous. Don't you love it? Like when you stumble across a commercial or an old movie and you're like, yeah, you're like pointing all these people. I mean, for me, for the novice, it's like you, you discovered some piece of treasure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so we, we kind of were like, as we were casting this movie, we made personalized videos for every actor we went out to. Wow. So like normally you send a, you just send a script and an offer. So you say, Hey, Kate McKinnon, here's the script for this movie. We're going to pay you union, a union rate. It shoots in Austin during these dates. Are you interested and available? If so, we can set you up with a call with with the filmmakers. For this one, we were like, let's stand out. Our director had done this on on another. Let's go balls out. Let's go balls out, man. (laughs) And so we made like these very silly videos where it would be like, "Hey, Kate McKinnon, I'm Bradley. This is Andrew. Like, these are the seven reasons why we think you should come to Austin to make a crazy movie with us." Mm. And it'd be like, number one, we've got great breakfast tacos here. Like, number (laughs) two, we got a lot of great celebrities who live here. Like Lance Armstrong, he's awesome. Uh, Rick Perry, what a cool guy. David Koresh, I think, lived here for a little bit. It's like really absurd. And like, it worked. Uh, Kate McKinnon told her first day in Austin, she was like, that video like made a huge difference. Like, I, I thought the script was funny, but like the fact that you guys made this personal appeal to us, like made me realize, oh, these are people that I want to hang out with. How long did that film shoot for? Shot for 30 days in Austin, Texas in the dead of August. So it was hot as all get out. The football scenes, we shot 13 days, uh, no, wait, nine days of night shoots. Ooh. So that's like 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. Right. Um, lots of football, lots of stunts. But I mean, we pulled it off. The actual production probably could not have gone better. We just got lucky in, and with the cast, with the performances, with the the weather. I mean we met we got we're missed by rain like five different times like it was and if it had rained one night we would have been done like, yeah. like, <laughs> like over budget no, yeah well there's no room for error with it you know when you were dealing with the budget as low as we had hmm. we, we there's just like well if it rains like i guess we're just gonna have to rewrite that scene what is that like like when you have to iterate on something that you've, you had this storyline, right? In your mm-hmm. head of how this whole thing's going to play out. You've written this thing and then you have to iterate based off of some external circumstance. Like, how does that work? Like, how do you, do you have a process you go through or is it just like, is this a natural ability you have? I think it's usually you lean on your collaborators mm-hmm. as well. So like there would definitely be moments not necessarily an intramural because that actually was a pretty blessed production, but and some other shorts or whatnot, like where you just go, okay, 
something's not working here. Some outside force is preventing us from getting what I thought we wanted. Let's take who's involved with the scene, the director of photography, usually the actors, and then maybe if there's a stunt involved, get the stunt coordinator there, maybe get the assistant director there. They can help figure some stuff out. But you just go, okay, how do we convey the emotion of the scene? We thought we had all day, but we just realized we only have two hours. So how do you do it in two hours? So do you have a process you go through? Because it sounds to me as like you you need a good team, a team of people that are unified around this idea of making a great film. But I've never worked in your world. I've worked in sports and you have a bunch of different, I'm going to use the word characters, people from all over Mm -hmm. the country, different backgrounds, socioeconomic status, see the world totally different. I can imagine Mm -hmm. acting is similar. How do you go about creating a team so that when moments like this happen, things gel and it's not this just blow up? I think as you keep working in this industry, every project, I like to look back and go, okay, that's somebody I'll work with for the rest of my life. That's somebody I would absolutely kill to work with any day of the week. Or, hey, if another project comes around and uh, I need to hire a cinematographer, like not going to hire that person. Yeah, because they did not, you know, they they weren't great. But I mean, I think it's toughest when you're just starting out because you don't know. At that point, it's hard to be to like pick the people above you to work with. Like if you're like right. a 25 year old, if you're like a 25 year old, and you're lucky enough to like be able to direct a feature. You probably will not have worked with the DP that is like you have a secondhand, you know, a, a mind meld with. So I think it's it's intuition, it's references, like just probably like sports, you know, professional sports and collegiate sports, like you're only as good as your last job. And so sometimes like, I mean, I've definitely been like, oh, hey, this person's up for a job on something that I'm producing or, or directing. I see through IMDb Pro or a couple of websites, like they've worked with my friend who was on this project. Right. So I call it my friend. And I'm like, hey, how was Jenny? So what are some specific qualities, though, that you are looking for in people? Well, obviously innate talent, but that's taste. That's sometimes that's hard to quantify. Mm-hmm. I think beyond if that makes up, you know, let's say that's 50 percent. Because let's just say if anybody, uh, let's just assume that anybody that's working with me is on the same level or probably more talented than me. Mm-hmm. I, I try not to work with people less talented than me because, you know, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> but uh, you have to, I mean, in my mind, you have to look at like, one, how do they, how do they react under pressure? Which that's, you know, you call up some references. How do they treat other people? I know a couple of people that are wildly talented, but that I don't really want to work with because they don't treat other people very well. Mm. The myth of the jerk artist, I think is, no, that's why I said jerk. It could be, let's just say a-hole or whatever you want to say. Right. The tortured genius, maybe. There's not many of them that exist in the film industry because the film industry is so collaborative. Mm. And some of them do exist, for sure. But they need to be so talented that it's just like, all right, fine. I'll take abuse so I can be a part of something good. But I feel like most people, like, if you're directing a, a movie, you have to make probably 100 different decisions a day and those decisions deal with 
a hundred different people. So, so this like, is really a human industry. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, I know that we're, de- you're developing art with people, but right. this is, you're, this is creating a collaborative team of people that can work. Cause I mean, some of these shoots can last for a very long time, can't they? Depending on the type of yeah. film. And I can imagine that would be torture working with somebody that was just a total rear end. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, working with, with your brother, the documentary Delt that we did together was a three and a half year process. Mm. Uh, and if I didn't like Luke, things would have been rough. Yeah. Thankfully we like each other. We get along great, but features are very different from documentary. That's a question I want to ask you about. I understand like in my mind, conceptually how you write a narrative. Okay. It's like writing a book, but first screen. Right. But in a documentary like action, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at the sports gambling industry, if something was taking place in real time Mm -hmm. that had never happened before, Mm -hmm. how do you write a script for that? So there's three phases of filmmaking, both for documentary and for narrative filmmaking. There's pre-production, there's production, and there's post-production. Pre-production in narrative is screenwriting meets planning meets casting meets all that. Production is obviously you're on set, you're filming, you've got the script pages, you go action, cut. And then post-production is you have filmed that script and then you edit it in order. Mm. Pre-production in documentary filmmaking is like, okay, we've got this subject, sports gambling. Okay, how do we how do we tackle that? What do we what do we do? I guess we gotta go to Vegas. We should go to Vegas because that's where it takes place. Let's start looking at characters. Let's get on YouTube and see if there's any interesting sports gambling people that are in Vegas. Let's call them. Let's see if they're interested. Let's have dinner with them. Let's get them to sign off on being in this. And then let's start writing. And then, but pre-production with documentary, all of that process bleeds together. You're always in pre-production once you're in production, you're also always in pre-production. And then once you're, and then oftentimes while you're in pre-production and production, you're also need to start editing because you don't know what's going on. So, I mean, like while we were making action, there would be periods where we would be like, okay, we've got to go film this big sequence with this character, but he's in Atlantic city and we, we have to deliver a rough cut of the first episode in two weeks. Okay, so you're going to stay here and work with the editors. I'm going to go to Atlantic City and do all the pre-production and production. We'll write questions for our subjects together on, you know, over the phone. You'll send me a rough cut while I'm on the plane to watch and be like, okay, that's a good idea. I can ask them about that. So it all just blends together you just have to like have a you kind of have to have a crazy mind Mm. um and thankfully on action we had at one we had five editors and three story producers also working with us in addition to myself a creative producer the director who is your brother and a showrunner who was who was kind of like helping us you know glue it all together because you guys were in atlantic city and vegas simultaneously ish. I mean, that's the way it felt as the viewer as yeah. this whole thing is unfolding of like the first yeah. year, the first period of legalized gambling and you're yeah. watching this football season unfold. I mean, it was a fascinating story. 
Mm-hmm. How did you find? Oh gosh, Todd. Is that was that his name, Todd, the bigger fellow? Yeah. That, that ended yeah. up having kind of the romantic interest. Yes. How did you find that guy? That is honestly the thing I am most proud of, proud about about that whole show is our discovery of him because we knew going in, like we wanted, we knew there were different character tropes in the sports gambling world. We'd done enough research where it's like, there's the bookie, there's the the tout. A tout is somebody who's like, I've got the sure thing winner. Just pay me a hundred bucks and I'll tell you. Right. There's the handicapper. There's the professional better. And then we were like, and we'd love to find a degenerate, (laughs) but it's like, you know, degenerates don't have big web presence, you know, like it's not like you can just like, you know, because they're, you know, they're at the end, you know, whatever. And so we had always thought like, we'd love to find one, but who knows? And then one day we were at the sports book filming and Luke, the director was filming with the DP at another area. And he goes up to me and he's like, Hey, make a lap of the sports book and just see who are some interesting people we could maybe just like, get in front of and be like, Hey, what do you think about legalization of sports gambling? I was like, cool. Yeah. I like doing that stuff. I tend to have a decently good eye about like, who's going to be the weirdo that's going to be great on camera. Yeah. And I was walking around and I just saw this guy, his chair, everybody's chair is lined straight up. His chair was moved out to the side. He had this big boom box on his table that was like playing audio from like three different games. Cause there was like 50 TVs around. Yeah. Yeah. And he was yelling and people were laughing around him. So Luke came back and I was like, Hey, something about that guy over there. Let's like, let's get Gabe, our cinematographer. Why don't you go over and like you and me, we'll, we'll just start peppering him with some questions. And so we did. And he just lit up and he's going, boom, 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 boom. He was saying the funniest things. Uh, he was just so funny and charismatic. And he was saying everything he was saying everything like a, just a great subject would. Yeah. And we talked to him for like 20 minutes. We were like dying laughing the whole time and it was done. And Luke and I, we, we, we took a quick break and like Luke and I sat together and we both were like, I think he's our degenerate character. Cause this guy, you broke your heart. Yeah. I mean, he had this love interest who was like right there. Yeah. And you guys did a beautiful job of telling this story of like, he just couldn't get out of his own way. Yeah. And I, I mean, you could almost make an entire follow-up documentary on him. I, yeah, honestly. And, and everything we did with him would just end up being wonderful. Like mm. we literally like Luke went back to him and was like, Hey, you're really interesting. And he was like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we were like, could we like do an interview with you? And he goes, where we're like your apartment and he's like he's like guys i don't know if you want to film my apartment i live like a terrorist <laughs> and we're like what does that mean he's like i he's like i barely have a bed i have a table and, and a mattress and we're like mm-hmm. that's exactly what we want to film and so he led us into his apartment and we filmed a two-hour interview with him the next day that like was so incredible and he had he told this story in in, uh, in the middle of it that the second i heard the story in my mind, I go, that's something special. He told this this interesting story about how he relates to sports gambling. I heard it and I go, that's something special. That will be in the documentary somewhere. 
and it ended up being the the very end of the whole thing. It's mm-hmm. the it's the story that ties up the final three minutes of the thing, of the of the series. And then when his friend Diana showed up, he just told us. We, we literally showed up. He's like, "Hey, I've got a friend who's going to show up today. She's really funny." And we're like, "Okay." Within like two minutes, we're like, "This is gold." Yeah. This is like they're so funny together. He clearly has something for her. We're not sure what it is, and uh, that's what that's what makes documentary filmmaking so magical. It's finding the surprise. How did how did you garner his trust? I mean, you guys. You were in people's lives. Right. And how do you get people's trust like that? I don't know. With Todd in action, I think it was a combination of we were with Showtime. So I think he was like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. But I think we just like, you know, we just listened to him. We just talked to him. With Richard Turner for our documentary Delt. It was just being around him for about six months and then he started opening up. Mm. I think it's just being there and like talking like if somebody, are they married? Okay. Be nice to their wife. Like do what you would do if you wanted to make a new friend, honestly. And I don't know, like it's tricky because you don't want, you don't necessarily want them to get involved in the creative storytelling process Mm because everybody wants to look good. And sometimes people looking good is very inauthentic. Did he know and there was a risk got, for that? He did. I think he knew that he's very self-aware. Within like five minutes, he'd be like, yeah, I'm a hundred pounds overweight. Yeah, I'm diabetic. Yeah, I'm probably addicted to gambling, but I'm not broke yet. Yeah, I've had some really dark days. Mm. So I think he, it was for Todd, I think it was a combination of like, he wanted a little bit of attention, which I don't blame him. He's really funny and crazy. Um, that, hopefully that's a good enough answer for you. Did did filming this movie change you or impact you as a person? Action? Yeah. I think action changed me in a lot of ways. Well, one, it got me way more into sports. Not gambling. I, I still don't gamble. But like for some reason, action, I just started... I always loved sports, but like... For some reason, it just made me more interested in like the intricacies of sports. Mm-hmm. I think it made me a little bit more of an empathetic person. I think documentaries are great empathy machines because you just meet like, I would have never known what it would be like to have an addictive personality. I don't really have an addictive personality, but like everybody in that show has an addictive personality. Yeah. And especially Todd, he really wrestled with it. I mean, he said he had a quote that we used in the documentary. He's talking about his food addiction, actually. That was something I was really proud we got into. Not only is he addicted to gambling, but he's also addicted to food. And he made this quote where he's just like, you know, they say an addiction is like owning a tiger, but with a food addiction, you have to take the tiger on a walk three times a day. Mm. So like, you don't have to gamble to live. You don't. So if you don't want to gamble, just move to, you know, move to Utah or something like that where they don't allow gambling. If you're addicted to food, you got to eat. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can only imagine that these different, these different experiences, because like all I can do is reflect on my career as a coach mm-hmm. and all the different places I've been along the way. And each one changes you in a different way. 
because yeah. it's human interaction. You learn more about yourself. You learn about other people. You learn about, learn about what the world's really like. Right. That's really interesting. I yeah. didn't get my question answered earlier because we kind of went on a, a rabbit hole. Oh, yeah. I what, love was un- what was unfortunate about the change of the name of your movie, Intramural to Balls Out? Well, for one, the title just sucks. Like, yeah. Balls Out, you know. But I think the the thing that bothered me the most about that title change, and there are a lot of things that bothered me about that title change, was one, the way they went about it. They just changed it without telling us. Mm. It was in our contract that we had already signed. Like they just sent us a revised contract when we had already signed like a short form. And it said like buried within the contract, it literally just said intramural now titled balls out. We didn't get the courtesy of a phone call or anything like that. They had the power to change it just like that. I don't know if they'd already given us the money, but like our invest, we had already like told our investors like, Hey, we're, we're giving you back all this money that you invested. Mm. And they were like, great. And so we were just, up a creek without a paddle. They also drastically changed the marketing. They marketed it as if it were like National Lampoon's Bikini Girl Squad kind of a thing. I got you. Um, I can send you a couple of funny articles that some people wrote about like, why is this movie that has no sex, drugs, or nudity being marketed as if it's a sex, drugs, and nudity filled romp? Did that anger any of the, or upset any of the actors? They all loved the movie. We still had like, what was special about it was like the production, everything about the making of the movie was so fun and scrappy and blessed, and like blessed, like genuinely blessed in like how things turned out. And then we got into this very prestigious film festival uh, called the Tribeca Film Festival in New York right. City. <laughs> and our premieres were like packed and like the laughter was nuts. The reviews, like all the all the critic reviews, for the most part, were really positive. Like this movie's funny. Like wow. Like <laughs> look at this. Look at these burgeoning SNL stars. And and then when we got this offer from a major studio, and we were like, heck yeah, this is like the dream. And um, so I think like essentially having like a eighteen month period where it was nothing but like wow, this is really positive. But so when we told them of the name change. I think they were bummed like we were, but I think at the end of the day, they still, I don't know. I mean, I, I still think they, they like the movie. I don't, you know, Kate McKinnon has gone on to do a lot bigger movies since then. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a lot of the other actors. So it was, you know, I think they, they kind of ran with the joke. They knew that like we got, we kind of got screwed a little bit. So what did you learn from it? I learned that I don't like marketing. Um, because it's so out of your control as a creator, mm. especially when a lot of money is involved. I mean, in a weird way, it is kind of an insanely fascinating first Hollywood experience because it was 90% good and all the bad stuff happened at the end. Mm-hmm. So that does kind of put a little bit of a sour, it's like having an ice cream sundae with just a little bit of garbage on top. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can probably scoop the garbage off, but you're like, you know, there's been garbage there. <laughs> I mean, also I can imagine on your, like, I don't know what you call it, your filmography or whatever the, what's the term for it? Yeah, your res- your filmography, your yeah, resume, or whatever. Your resume, it's like, instead of intramural, it's balls out, you know? That's why I put that in my, and I also like, I lead with like, 
we got into this film festival. We right. were a New York Times Tribeca, critic, critic huge. Pick. Yeah, yeah. Like the New York Times gave us a critics pick. Like, like it was a to me, most people who get filmmaking think the story really they understand the story. They can empathize and they think it's funny, which it is. I mean, it is funny. At the end of the day, we're just it was just a movie, you know. Yeah. It's a very silly movie about intramural flag football that is like very over the top and you know and i do think it's a nice somewhat of a successor to like a wet hot american summer or a dodgeball those types of movies that i grew up loving as a kid but yeah it it definitely i mean it didn't feel great yeah well you've had some tremendous successes since i mean it's not like you you just went and fizzled i mean you you've been a part of some amazing productions yeah let me ask you something. You're a creator. I mean, that is essentially what people, at the end of the day, they're paying you to create. You don't have a job unless you create. Right. How do you create the conditions for creativity? That's a very good question. I think it's it's discipline, just being very practical about it. As far as writing goes, I always write in the morning. Sometimes I write in the afternoon and the evening, but if I don't, I don't force myself to do that because I'm not as wired in. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm on a deadline or like I'm doing a little bit of a rewriting, sometimes I'll write in the afternoon and the evening, but I get most of my work done from like 8 a.m. to like 11 a.m. I'm the same exact way. Yeah. And so I, I don't, I try not to schedule meetings unless they're super important. I try not to miss that period for anything. Even if I have just finished like another script and I'm like, well, what do I do today? I still try to like at least sit down during that time and like write something or rewrite something or read a script of a friend. And sometimes that might jog me. I think it's just honoring the process. What is the process? The process is intentionally sitting yourself down and being open to whatever comes. Somebody said, I only write when I'm inspired. And when I'm inspired is Monday through Saturday. 8 a.m. through 1 p.m. So it's like, it's a joke, obviously, but it's like, yeah, like, and like some of the best stuff or some of the best ideas I have ever had have happened when I have been like, I do not want to write today. I don't have anything to write about. I'm frustrated. I'm tired, but okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to put my headphones on. I'm going to maybe journal a little bit, just freestyle and just like whatever. And then I'm going to like maybe read, like reading fiction helps get you, get you out of your own head a little bit. And then like, you just start going. Like I, sometimes I'll even like, if I'm trying to write like an outline or like passages in a book, I'll literally write at the bottom of my Word document, 1500 words. Don't be a, don't be a sucker. You can do it. Even if like 1400 of those words are garbage. At the end of the day, you still wrote 100 really good words. So I feel like that's, and by the way, that's easier said than done. There are definitely days where I fully get sucked down the uh, Twitter rabbit hole or the, the CNN rabbit hole or whatever it is. So what habits have you adopted to support this process of your golden window of 8 to 11 so that you're at your best? Waking up early, between 6.30 and 8 at the latest. And I'm sure the people out there that have kids are like, oh my God, I don't have kids. So, you know, before there was a worldwide pandemic, it was getting in your car and going to a a coffee shop. Usually for me, like I liked being in a 
place surrounded by other people sometimes, especially when I used to live in Austin, just going, there was a coffee shop that I really liked where it's just like, I'm here. I like to sit in the same spot if I can. And yeah, I think it's just, you know, showing up. I've joked, there's a, there's a, there's a science, there's like a mental science philosophy around it too. But like, and this is not about writing, but I've joked about like, if I ever wanted to write an exercise book, my title would be the hardest part to staying in shape is putting on your gym shorts. <laughs> no question. So like, because yeah, like once the gym shorts are on, I'm going to work out. I will do it. It's just putting on the gym shorts. And you know something? There's science behind that. There's a whole lab at Stanford called Behavior Design Lab that Dr. BJ yeah. Fogg created. Mm -hmm. And uh, the three parts to behavior are motivation, ability, and prompt. Mm -hmm. And what you just described was prompt. And it's not a notification on your phone. As a matter of fact, that can be annoying. But yeah. it's like, if you can anchor something on something that naturally happens, yeah. then you can do it. When I brush my teeth, I will. So right. what you just described is yeah. the science behind behavior. Yeah. Anyways, I just want to interject that to give you a little bit of. No. Yeah. I'm like, you know, in the, during the pandemic, I think I struggled at first because I kind of had a cushy, I was like, kind of like show running a doc, like a documentary, uh, like a web documentary for like American express. And it was like pretty cushy job, well-paying, like very like, not exactly the most challenge. Like I was excited with good work and I was excited to be doing it, but it wasn't exactly the most challenging or creative. I was doing it for the money. Which mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I have no problem doing things for the money. <laughs> I'm not trying to tell people like, you know, but then when obviously the pandemic happened and that project went away, I, str I really struggled because not only was my like source of income cut off, but also my ability to write in the way that I had grown accustomed, which was to, go to a coffee shop, talk to, talk to a, a, you know, a barista, get a coffee, go sit down four inches away from somebody else and just kind of like lock in that had gone away too. So I had to create new habits for myself. So my new, my new habits are like, wake up immediately, go for a walk around my neighborhood. Just cause like that kind of like, I think that resembles that I've gone, like I liked going to a coffee shop cause it meant I was getting out of my living space for a little bit now that i can't get out of my living space like i found it really helpful to like all right get up take like a 15 minute walk with no phone no distractions just like and it's at seven you know it's 7 30 in the morning it's nice outside and just kind of like look around and then when you get in just go sit down at your same spot on the couch every day and just go for it it was really tough at first because i was so used to like the ritual of like going to a coffee shop hmm. you know ordering the coffee sitting down that kind of a thing so what have you what have you learned about yourself i mean you bring up this covid thing i mean this is everybody on the planet that has dealt with this has had to change in some way yeah and, you know to adapt and thrive what have you learned about mm -hmm. yourself from this time that actually gives you maybe some hope for the future yeah i mean you're you're hitting me at a very potentially positive time. <laughs> when I say potentially, you may know what I'm talking about. I, I can't get into it here, but like a lot of work that I had put in during that six months of pandemic 
seems like it might be paying off. Yeah. In the next in the next two to three to four weeks. I think it taught me to trust the process that I've been able to make a living doing this since I was 22 years old and I graduated from college. I've never had to do anything else other than write or work work in film and television. And that's sometimes I forget that, you know, we if things haven't gone well for a day or like you haven't, you know, you haven't gotten a a paycheck, a real a real like paycheck in like a couple of months, you can be like well, I'm destitute. Like no one's ever going to hire me again. And then you go, well, wait, there's no history of that happening. Like you've always paid your rent on time. You've always been able to like go out and get some food and you've not had to take another type of job in your life. Nothing that people who do that, like, that's like, I actually kind of wish that I had at times. I feel like I might be a little bit more well-rounded, <laughs> but I think it's like looking at what is it? I think Tim Ferriss calls it like fear casting where you like write out what are the, what are you most scared of in this moment of change or in this moment of whatever. And when, by writing it out, you usually like, like well, that's actually, I don't think I'm going to be destitute in too much. Like, like me being on the street is a long way away. Right. Uh, that's years down the line. And like, I've always been able to, you know, there've been dry spells. There's always dry spells in this, in this industry. And uh, when it rains, it pours too. So no question. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, it's so interesting talking to people during COVID from all different walks of life and all different mm. uh, jobs and this uncertainty has, I think, brought to the forefront of our minds our fragility. But in other ways, it's created yeah. toughness. It's created toughness. Right. Because, you know, you have to make a, if you're going to survive and thrive, you have to make a confident, conscious decision. And yeah. I think what yeah. you pointed out is controlling that narrative in your head is really important. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I got a question for you. I want, if you don't mind, I'd like to wrap up with this. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. I haven't asked anybody this yet, but since you're a creator, um, give me your three favorite books or three books or something you're reading right now that's got you really stimulated. And then Mm. because you're a filmmaker, what are your three favorite films of all time that you didn't make? Well, the movies that I made are not my favorites. So there you go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love the movies that I've worked on and got to make, but yeah, man, I, I think it's, it's tough to name the three favorite movies. I can name you three movies that right now I think about a lot and that really resonate with me. There's a movie called Magnolia mm. that I, I try to watch every year. It's written and directed by a guy named Paul Thomas Anderson. And he did, he did There Will Be Blood, uh, Phantom Thread, Boogie Nights. And Magnolia stars like Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. For some reason, that movie just always it's not a perfect movie by any means. It's like very messy and way too long, but like it always gets me somehow. Mm-hmm. Maybe because I've watched it. The, the, these next two movies, I don't know if I would put them in my like top 10 movies of all time, but just because I keep going back to them, there's a movie called Sing Street and it's, it's a narrative. It's a scripted movie about these Irish teenagers in the, in the um, 80s who start a band. And 
it just gets me every it's, it's a, I think it's a perfect movie like it's mm-hmm. just so funny and entertaining and the music is so good and then just because I've also watched this movie so much lately one movie that I just watched a couple days ago that I was blown away by is this movie called Palm Springs um, yes I saw it's it so good just like like I was smiling the whole time do you think uh, it was kind of a, I'm sorry I'm gonna interject here did it feel like a reboot of Groundhog Day yeah, but I think they knew it. Like, yeah. I, I think they knew that, and it did enough things different. By the way, if you're going to do a really good riff on Groundhog Day, I'm there for it all day, all day long. Because Groundhog yeah. Day is one of the best movies ever made. Uh, but then there's another movie called Michael Clayton with George Clooney. Yeah. That for some reason, I just keep watching, and it's just such a precise, subtle movie. Mm. As far as books go, I. We'll go with the the most fun one first, and because I referenced them earlier. But Stephen King, Misery. Okay. Oh my goodness, this book is insane. <laughs> um, I mean, it's about a they made it into a movie, uh, like in the eighties, and Kathy yeah. Bates won an Oscar for it. But yeah, I mean, it's about a writer that gets it gets into this huge car accident, and then his like biggest fan rescues him, and she also happens to be a sociopath. <laughs> And she she keeps him trapped in her her secluded house for for like oh man the, so the ankle breaking thing just makes yeah. me cringe. But this this book, I mean, it's so this book actually speaks to the creative process in a way that I've never seen a hmm. book speak to it. Because she starts making him write a new book, um, and he doesn't want to at first because it's based on a book series that he hates that he got really famous with. Um, but as he starts writing it, he's like, wow, I kind of like, you know, he starts like, you know, there's a bit of Stockholm syndrome when you're writing something where you're like, man, this is really good. (laughs) I love this. And then maybe it's, I don't know. There's this book called the passage. It's like a, it's big, it's big sci-fi fiction, but it's like one of the most beautifully written book series. It's a big book series. They tried to make it into a Fox TV show and it's, uh, um, starring Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. Um, and then, uh, this is like my epic choice, Chantaram. Mm. It's, uh, it's really, really good. It's about this guy who, um, it's kind of based on this true life story about this, like, fugitive from Australia who, who's running from the law and he makes his way to India and, like, starts this whole new life, becomes like a, a gun and a drug smuggler and then becomes like a doctor and then, becomes like a he joins the army i mean it's just like epic beyond all get out so it's really good those are my those are my choices i love it yeah bradley i appreciate you and i thank you for just opening up and and talking about like there's there's commonality between all elite performers and i consider you to be an elite performer and um i really appreciate you taking time with us today and yeah and, and getting a little soul naked so thank you so much i love it absolutely man thanks for joining me today for another episode of the blueprint podcast if you found this episode valuable would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint again that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint also if you want to stay current on everything high performance follow me on instagram at eric quorum Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.